This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week, Lou Whitaker, second baseman, Detroit Tigers, card number 770. All right, Lou Whitaker. Excited about this one. Glad to get another Tiger on the on the show. But before we get to Lou Whitaker, just a quick follow-up from last week's episode on Damaso Garcia. Just wanted to note that Damaso Garcia Jr., Damaso's son, saw our post and thanked us for talking about his dad. And we just think that's really cool and uh, are grateful when families of players listen and are just thrilled when they <laughs> that they like it because we do our best to try to do justice for their dads and uncles and for everything that they meant to the sport of baseball and to us as fans. So thank you uh, for that. But now let's go to Lou Whitaker. And David, why did we choose Lou this week? So Matt, as eagle-eared listeners will know, there's been a tiny voice yelling in the background of some episodes. <laughs> no. And that is a, that's a baby named Lou. And when... My daughter was born, and we named her Louise, and we said we would call her Lou. My dad said, uh, after Lou Gehrig? And I said, no, maybe like maybe Lou Brock. And then my wife asked, well, is there a Lou in the set to do a podcast about? And there's two. There's only two, which I thought in the 80s there would be more guys named Lou. The other is Lou Pinella, who was a manager at the time. Both of them named Sweet Lou. I didn't look into this to find out if every person named Lou is named Sweet Lou, (laughs) but there are a lot of Sweet Lou's. So I thought this would also be a great opportunity to bring back Adam Dorowski from Baseball Reference at Baseball Twit on Twitter. And Adam has a fantastic podcast called Building the Ballot, the Baseball Hall of Fame's Era Committees. And I've been enjoying that podcast where it's been talking about the Golden Days Committee and the early baseball committee and the ballots that that have been put out and the nominees for those committees to add new members to the Hall of Fame from maybe some of the the more forgotten older era and some of the, the classic players who missed their chance the first time around. And I think that this is a good opportunity to talk about both the podcast and how those era committees work and how Lou Whitaker might be impacted by the era committee process. He was already passed over once by the modern baseball committee, but he may get another chance. And so we'll talk about Lou's Hall of Fame bona fides. And uh, welcome back to the show, Adam. Hey, thanks for having me back, guys. This is really great to, uh, to talk about Lou Whitaker today. Yeah, Adam, although you are now another guest that has more podcasts than I do, so I'm not sure how I feel about this. You and Mark Simon together, I feel like, have maybe twice as many podcasts as as I do, although I do have one uh, called Sweet Georgia Brown about how all the people who are named Georgia Brown in history are actually called Sweet Georgia Brown, but that's (laughs) a different story completely. Is that the name of the song? That the, the Harlem Globetrotters song. I think that there was a Sweet Lou who was a Harlem Globetrotter. So it it's all comes full po- circle. Very, very possible. I'll find that. Looking at Lou Whitaker's career here, how do we even begin? We're going to go through a lot of stats. We're going to go through a lot of seasons. But unlike a lot of guys where we get into transactions, Lou Whitaker had no trades. He was on the same team for 19 seasons. 
we can't possibly do every season justice. There was only two seasons where the Tigers made the playoffs in those 19 seasons. Maybe we'll break it into some chunks, talk a little bit about his early career, his first peak, and then his later career, and then maybe tie it all together by looking at his case for the Hall of Fame. That sounds like a great outline to me, so let's go to the front of 770. And here we have Lou Whitaker in the batter's box. He's just taken a good swing. He's looking toward right field, maybe the right side of the infield. And love the colors on this, the deep orange and black of the card that match almost exactly the deep orange and black of the Tigers uniform. So this is a great, a great shot. I like that he's wearing pony shoes. <laughs> no Nikes at the time, you know, not as, not as prevalent. Uh, what's going on in his back pocket? Is he, did he decide to like only wear one batting glove and put the other one in the pocket for show? Or is that like a a plastic bag he went to the grocery <laughs> store. Yeah, maybe it is a handkerchief, maybe you know, to wipe the sweat from his brow if he if he's running extra hard to first. This is a a good action shot as you said, Matt, and he also looks not a lot of these where the guy looks muscular like an athlete. Mm-hmm. But this one you can see neck veins. Lou looks fit unlike some yeah. some of our our other <laughs> cards here but this is a good looking card and also the i like this is maybe an 80s thing a batting helmet on top of a hat you don't see that anymore now they have batting helmets that actually fit no the batting helmets these days are thousand dollar works of art and science this this just got crammed on top of his ball cap it after he ate ice cream out of it or something <laughs> <laughs> yes. definitely could be that Excellent. So very good looking card. Plus just well-framed top of his head, you know, is about is a little less than an inch from the top border. The, the bottom of his shoes are equally framed. I, it just it looks great to me. Now let's look at the back of 770. This one has very similar kind of golden ratio dimensions. You have the stats that fill up the box, but still room for one small fun fact. And it just feels like it's a very, I don't know, I feel like the feng shui of this card is uh, very positive. From a high level, because we already fronted that we'll talk about possible Hall of Fame candidacy, a surprising thing here is the lack of black ink. The only black ink being a tie for games played in the strike-shortened 1981 season. (laughs) So not, you know... A second baseman at the time, probably, unless you're leading the league in steals or batting average, probably not going to have much black ink on there. But still, uh, looks like a solid career as we're as we're looking at this, and knowing that he had another eight seasons after that that were all that were still pretty good and another peak later on. Eleven years of stats on here. Lou Whitaker, second baseman, five eleven, one sixty, left-handed batter, right-handed thrower, drafted by the Tigers in the fifth round in 1975 born may 12th 1957 in brooklyn new york with a home in bloomfield hills michigan i was excited to talk about brooklyn but lou didn't live there (laughs) he moved when he was very young he was named lewis rodman whitaker jr he never knew his father his father was involved in some criminal activity and lou didn't really have a relationship with him and never used jr as part of his name When he was one, his mother was pregnant with a daughter, and they moved to Martinsville, 
Virginia to live with her family. Martinsville, home of the Martinsville Speedway, the half mile of mayhem, the shortest track in the NASCAR Cup Series and the only speedway in the circuit since the beginning of NASCAR in 1949. Other Martinsvillians, I don't know if that's right, include <laughs> uh, father-son MLB duo Randy and Todd Hundley. Todd was born in Martinsville, but grew up in suburban Chicago while his dad played for the Cubs. Yeah, a little note about uh, Randy, the the dad there. As a young kid, I was always really into those Iron Man catchers, and he's got a couple really cool records that I that I enjoyed finding as a kid. Where he caught in 1968 160 games and started 156 games behind the plate, both of them major league records. <laughs> both Cubs catchers. Randy, oh. though, better with the Cubs probably than Todd. I think Todd had a rough time in Chicago. Right, yeah, I don't even remember Todd with the Cubs, but I guess it might have happened. <laughs> I vaguely remember it. Another Martinsville native, Sonny Wade, who is a three-time Grey Cup champion and Grey Cup final MVP with Les Alouettes de Montreal. And also Patrick Henry of Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death fame, who lived outside of the city limits, but in the general area of Martinsville. Lou's mother worked a night shift at a local restaurant, and the family was not well off. Lou's grandparents had a, a house that often held many in the extended family. I've seen anywhere from 14 to 18 as the most people in the house at one time. So Lou often had uncles, cousins, all living in the same house as him as he was growing up. He also had crooked legs when he was little, and his family couldn't afford orthopedic treatments. So his uncles worked his legs and they gradually straightened them out as he was a young person. In high school, Lou played both infield and pitched for Martinsville High. He was so good that as a junior, a Tiger scout came to watch him. Unfortunately, when that scout came back to Martinsville, when Lou was a senior, he got in a car accident on the way. So he didn't actually make it to Martinsville and was unable to file a report with the Tigers. So the Tigers had to look at the MLB Scouting Bureau reports. One of them had Lou... On a a scale of 20 to 80, they had him as a 50, and one had him as a 55. The Tigers saw that 55, and the scout who filed it was a guy named Bill Jurgis. So now we get into the popular segment of scout talk. (laughs) Uh, This might be one of the most interesting scout talks. Bill Jurgis, or Billy Jurgis, was a player in the 30s and 40s for the Cubs and later for the Giants, and then he came back to Chicago for the Cubs. In 1932, Jurgis was involved in a relationship with a showgirl named Violet Valley. Jurgis decided he was going to break off this relationship, so he met Valley at the Hotel Carlos, which is on Sheffield, just a few blocks from Wrigley Field. And Valley maybe thought something was going to happen, and she had a gun and, and pulled it on him. She was going to shoot Jurgis and herself. He saw the gun lunged for it, and was shot in the side, arm, and hand. Valley also was shot. Jurgis goes to the hospital. He ends up fully recovering from this because this is early in his career, and then played for 15 more seasons, made a couple all-star games, played really good defense, and then went on to, to become a respected scout and coach in Major League Baseball. And this shooting may have been one of the inspirations for the natural. So as we've heard, Jurgis is tough. He was also a tough grader of prospects. The Tigers thought that that 55 was really good if Jurgis gave it to him. 
he was both a well-rated second baseman, but also a pitcher, and the Tigers decided to to give him a shot. Whitaker was maybe going to go to junior college, and instead the Tigers picked him in the fifth round to play third base. The, the Tigers scout was unable to convince him to sign for the team. And so Bill LeJoy, the scouting director for the Tigers, he then goes to Martinsville and is able to convince Lou to sign. He gave him a suitcase full of clothes. And Adam, I saw on Baseball Reference, there was no bonus listed for Lou, but that sounds like a pretty good bonus. Suitcase full of a new wardrobe. Either way, Bill LeJoy convinces Lou to sign for the Tigers and then drives him to his first minor league placement at Bristol. Yeah, Adam, is there is a wardrobe compensation? Do you have any statistics on that? You know, that sounds like something that's right up our alley. If we've got, you know, the bowling statistics for Mookie Betts on his page and and rodeo results for (laughs) Madison Bumgarner, whatever it is, uh, we should probably look into this. Excellent. We'll file a ticket. Getting into the minor leagues, Lou didn't start out great hitting 237 in rookie ball, but he played well enough to impress. 1976 spring training, he introduced himself to the Tigers GM, Jim Campbell. I'm Lewis Whitaker, and I'll be playing for you soon. A lot of confidence. And he wasn't, he wasn't wrong. The next season, he played at A-ball. Yeah, that takes us to the fun fact that Lou was selected Florida State League MVP in 1976. At Lakeland, he hit 297 and stole 48 bases, named MVP of the league. I thought it was interesting that he was an, a minor league MVP. That's not something that you, you see on the backs of cards a lot. And I was wondering if there's a good place to look up minor league MVPs. And I, I found them on the baseball cube back to 1993. So previous MVPs of the Florida State League include Derek Jeter, Adrian Beltre, and Ryan Howard. Pretty good names to be in, included with. Lou, at this point in his career, hadn't really developed much power. Later in his career, we'll see he hits for some power, but at this point, his slugging percentage was lower than his on-base percentage. Later in 1976, he would connect with a young man at Instructional League who he'd be around for the next 20-plus years, and that was Alan Trammell. Trammell was drafted to play shortstop in 1976 and was Lou's roommate in Florida that fall. The Tigers had a really good draft that year. They also picked Jack Morris and Dan Petrie, and a shortstop in the seventh round who didn't sign named Ozzie Smith. But they ended up with a pretty good shortstop anyways in Alan Trammell. Around this time, the Tigers brass decide that they want to switch Lou to second base and team him up with Trammell, have the shortstop-second base combination. The Tigers GM promises Lou and Trammell new sport coats if they perform well. They ended up performing well enough that he bought them new suits, not just sport coats. So many clothes in this episode and, and in this story already. Maybe they would have needed uh, new suits a little bit later. At one point, the Tigers' management wanted Lou and Alan Trammell to gain weight. So there's a story that Alan Trammell tells. They were in Florida, and they lived by a steak and shake. They were supposed to go to steak and shake to get shakes every night to help them gain weight. So this is, you know, really scientific... training regimen that they're on and uh, i worked at steak and shake as a 16 year old and i can tell you the shakes are delicious i I don't know that they're great if you're going to be up early playing baseball the next morning lou and alan uh, became friends at double a the next season they both played well lou hitting 280 trammell was the league mvp at double a 
Yeah, I looked up the previous winners of the the Southern League MVP as well, and that's a, a class that includes Carlos Delgado, Joey Votto, and Evan Longoria. Around this time, Trammell and Lou become real close, you know, having kind of a uh, connected-at-the-hip relationship as shortstop and second baseman. Trammell said, we didn't have anybody else. If one of us had a bad night, the other one wouldn't let him stay down. We became pretty close. And they both earned call-ups to the majors that season straight out of double A in 1977. Both Lou and Trammell made their debuts on September 9th in game two of a doubleheader against the Red Sox. Lou got a hit in his first at bat, went three for five with a steal and an RBI, and Alan Trammell went two for three. Lou played in 11 games that season, didn't have an error, and this was the start of a great big league double play tandem. But in 1978, it wasn't clear where they would start, if they would go back to AAA Around this time, the shortstop for the Tigers had a really low batting average, but the second baseman at the time had a 300 average, so it was unclear if Lou would make the team as a second baseman. But by opening day, they had impressed enough that they were the starting shortstop and second baseman. Lou steps on the field and hears fans saying something, and he said, I thought they were booing me at first. But instead, they started a tradition of just saying, Lou! which would remain throughout his career. Yeah, so here's the time when they really were saying boo earns, <laughs> and it, it, they really weren't booing him. And the Tigers' management as well thought very highly of this double play tandem. Ralph Houck, who had played for and managed the Yankees, said Whitaker was the best young second baseman he had seen in four decades in baseball. With the help of that tandem coming up as rookies, the Tigers went from a 74-win team to 86 wins, and this is the first of 11 straight winning seasons. Whitaker would win the American League Rookie of the Year, hitting 285 and playing a solid second base. He and Trammell led the American League in double plays turned. Yeah, Whitaker had 3.8 war as a rookie, and Trammell was right behind him at 2.8, although Trammell did finish fourth in the voting, and it was a really great class. The second and third finishers were right there with Trammell and war. So it was uh, Paul Molitor, uh, who's a pretty good player, second in the voting, and he also had 2.7 war. And third was Carney Lansford with 2.6 war, so a great crew there. Despite the improved Tigers' performance, Ralph Houck left at the end of the season. The Tigers bring in Les Moss, who lasted 53 games, and he was replaced by Sparky Anderson. Yeah, Sparky had been manager of Cincinnati's Big Red Machine in the 1970s and had won two World Series. And so here we go on this, this run of 11 straight winning seasons that's been kicked off. Lou keeps up that rookie pace in 1979, hitting 280. 78 walks, finished eighth in the American League in on-base percentage, and also had 20 steals. His fielding was cleaned up a little bit. He dropped from 17 errors as a rookie to nine. And he got married in the offseason. Pretty good year. 1980, Lou's move to the leadoff spot. He starts slow, hitting under 200. Well into June, he's still leading off, and Sparky Anderson decides to move him out of the leadoff spot. He closed the season with a 233 average and a 283 slugging percentage. So it was it was a down year, but part of that was the mistake of putting him in the leadoff spot early in the year. 1981's the strike year, so his numbers look a little bit off that year. But in those early seasons, Lou was decent, and the Tigers were a little over 500 most seasons. 1982, a big jump in production comes as Lou hits 15 homers to go along with his usual 286 average. 
1983, however, we see the beginnings of, of what will turn into the championship 1984 team. Tigers win 92 games, could have made the playoffs. Unfortunately, they lost five of seven games to the Orioles down the stretch, end up finishing six games behind Baltimore in the AL East. Lou had the best offensive season of his career. This was his first 300 season, finishing third in the American League with a 320 average. Alan Trammell also raised his average 60 points to 319, finishing right behind Lou in fourth in the American League. And Lou was the first Tigers lefty with 200-plus hits since the 1940s. He earned his first All-Star appearance and had a triple and a sacrifice fly for two RBIs and a 13-3 AL win at Comiskey Park. Yeah, he ended up getting Tiger of the Year from the Detroit sports writers, won his first gold glove, his first silver slugger, and finished eighth in the AL MVP race. But Adam, you have a note here that he had an even greater honor. Yeah, on December 1st, the uh, the episode of Magnum P.I. dropped that featured a, a scene with, with Whitaker and Trammell together in just a, a brilliant scene of, of beautiful acting. <laughs> According to Alan Trammell, after the 1983 season, they flew to Honolulu. They hung out enjoying themselves, and it was only one day of shooting. He said, we definitely weren't quitting our day jobs in baseball, but they did get checks for $39.42 twice a year because they were part of the Screen Actors Guild. In this scene, Magnum doesn't recognize these two random guys at the bar, but Magnum always wore a Tiger's hat, and he's sitting at the bar complaining that he can't get seats, get tickets to a sold-out Tigers game. Maybe he didn't get a lot of their games on TV because wasn't he in Hawaii a lot? But for him not to recognize Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker at the bar is, you know, he must not have been a big fan. Also guest starring in this episode, you have a young Shannon Doherty and Donald Gibb, better known as the owner of Trader Todd's Bar in Wrigleyville or Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds. (laughs) Matt, have you sung karaoke at Trader Todd's? Uh, Indeed, I have uh, (laughs) multiple times, multiple times. I'm learning something today. I did not... uh... I didn't realize that it was such a uh, noteworthy place. but The episode prior to this one was called Squeeze Play and had Magnum on a softball team, and he probably could have used Lou and Tram <laughs> as teammates. So as you mentioned, David, the that 1983 team is pretty much intact and sets the stage for the 1984 championship team. You've got Lou, Trammell, Chet Lemon, Lance Parrish, and Kirk Gibson – Jack Morris, Dan Petrie, and Guillermo Hernandez, and Senior Smoke? Two of them. Ah! You have both Aurelio Lopez, the, the, the real Senior Smoke, and our old friend Juan Berenguer. And... This Tigers team was outstanding. They led the American League East from day one, went 18 and two in April. After mid-July, they were never fewer than seven and a half games ahead. They won 104 games, taking their division by 15 games. Lou dropped from his 320 average in 1983 back down to a more Lou Whitaker like 289. 13 home runs, named starting second baseman in the All-Star game, and again won a gold glove and silver slugger. In the playoffs, they sweep the Royals in the ALCS. Lou didn't have a great series at the plate. He went two for 14. 
but scored three runs, and the Tigers ended up making the World Series for the first time since 1968. Lou started out strong, leads off game one with a double, scores on the next at bat on an Alan Trammell single. He played great defense as well. He had a really good throw where he took a relay from Kirk Gibson and threw out Kurt Bavacqua, who was trying to stretch a double into a triple. For the series, Lou went 5 for 18, so not a spectacular batting average, but also had four walks. He reached base and scored runs in all five games and was really a solid performer for this World Series winning Tigers team. In 1985, he won his third consecutive Gold Glove and Silver Slugger Award. Yeah, so that's three straight years where he was an all-star, Gold Glove, and Silver Slugger. So I was just curious how often that happens. And among second basemen, the only only players to do it that often were Ryan Sandberg with six, Alomar had four such seasons, and Craig Biggio matched Whitaker with three. On the one hand, you're like, oh, the Silver Slugger's only been given out since 1980, but then you also remember that's 40 years of baseball now, and they're, they're the only guys to do it. Lou in 1985 hit 21 home runs, which was good for a second baseman at the time. He made the all-star game, went 0 for 2, but ended up with his jersey in the Smithsonian. I mean, it, it was kind of his jersey <laughs> in that he wore it in the all-star game. Lou forgot his jersey. He said he left his bag in the car, and then he traveled to the all-star game. He didn't tell anybody this until hours before the game started. He was able to borrow a helmet borrowed a fielder's glove, I think it was Cal Ripken's backup glove, and borrowed batting gloves. And then a Twins clubhouse attendant bought a snapback cap and a cheap jersey from the gift shop. But the jersey was blank. So Lou or somebody else drew a giant one in black marker, but they didn't put his name on it. This is like the most bootleg thing. What? <laughs> we'll, we'll put a link to this picture. And Lou played five innings, and then his jersey was sent to the Smithsonian. We have back-to-back shows now where there's such little regard for the All-Star game that, you know, last week we had Alfredo Griffin who got a shot in the game just because he happened to be in town and knew how to play baseball. My question about this jersey is, like, of all the artifacts that, like, go to Cooperstown, the Smithsonian picked this one. They're like, no, we got to we gotta get this one. So I don't know what it is about this shirt that the Smithsonian took it rather than the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame gets Alfredo Griffin's jersey. Maybe Tom Selleck knew a guy. So for 1986 and 87, he's still hitting in the 260s. With 21 homers in 1986 and 16 homers in 1987, Lou makes the all-star team both years. So that's five straight years in a row. And that 87 Tigers team we've talked about in the Matt Noakes episode, they again make the playoffs. And this is the last playoff appearance of Lou's career. He only went three for 17 in the series, but he walked seven times. He had a 417 on base percentage. And he hit a home run off Burt Blylevin. Unfortunately for the Tigers, they were knocked out by the Twins, who went on to win the World Series. But that playoff appearance earned the Tigers a spot in RBI baseball. And so for that, we are off to the RBI corner with Brian. And we're back in the RBI Baseball Corner with Brian. Brian, welcome back to the show. And here to talk about your favorite team, the Detroit Tigers and Lou Whitaker. It is always wonderful to be back, but it's especially wonderful to be back 
when I can talk about the Detroit Tigers and RBI baseball. This is my team. Of the 10 teams put together, I've probably played more with the Tigers than with the other nine teams combined. They're one of the most popular teams to play with in the game, and they're one of the best teams to play with in the game. And the reason for that is because they have just a ton of power, and especially left-handed power. They only have one weak spot in the lineup, and that's Larry Herndon at the number five spot. But you can take him out and put in Pat Sheridan or Bill Madlock, both really good bench bats, and then you've got the other one left for subbing in later in the game. And that leaves you with legit home run threats at every single spot in the lineup, plus a good bench guy if you need to take your pitcher out. They don't have a ton of speed, but both Alan Trammell and Kirk Gibson are pretty fast, and Pat Sheridan's fast as well. Even Lou Whitaker can run a little bit. The pitching is a bit of an afterthought. It's not great. Um, Doyle Alexander is probably your best option of the Tigers pitchers. Maybe you bring in Eric King later. But in reality, what you're really hoping to do with the Tigers is just slaughter your opponent. There's that 10-run slaughter rule in RBI baseball. And with all the home run power in that lineup, you might only need to have Doyle Alexander for five innings because the game might only last that long. And how about Sweet Lou Whitaker? Oh, Sweet Lou. So he's the number seven hitter in this loaded Tigers lineup. And I thought that was really interesting because in 1987, he was actually the leadoff hitter. Uh, instead, the Tigers RBI team has Alan Trammell leading off and Kirk Gibson batting second. Trammell was actually their cleanup hitter for the 87 season, and Gibson batted third. Instead, in RBI baseball, you go with Trammell, then Gibson, then Darrell Evans and Matt Noakes, um, and Lou Whitaker bat second. He's actually only the seventh or eighth best hitter in the Detroit team. Now, that speaks more to the strength of the team than it does to, to Lou Whitaker. If you were on, for instance, say Houston, he would have the second most power of any hitter on Houston. With the Tigers, he's got like the seventh most power. So within that team, number seven is probably the right spot for him. He's pretty good at everything. He's got decent power, decent speed, but he's the best second baseman in RBI baseball and one of the best number seven hitters that you'll find. So ultimately, he's a very good RBI baseball, maybe not Hall of Fame good RBI baseball player, but he's, he's definitely in that upper tier. He's a very well above average RBI baseball guy. So lots of good seasons, but no great seasons in RBI baseball. This is sounding familiar. So do you play him? Yes, you play him because even the Hall of Very Good is good enough. Uh, and for Lou Whitaker, it's good to keep him in the lineup. You could make an argument that he's actually the ninth best hitter once you account for a couple of the bench bats in Pat Sheridan and Bill Mavlock. But even then, you don't get to set your lineups in advance of the game in RBI baseball. So if you take Lou Whitaker out, you're losing him for the whole game. Whereas with some of these bench guys, you can bring them in later and keep them on the bench and save them. So I definitely keep them in the lineup. Well, Brian, with all of this great analysis, you've just put up 10 runs on us. So I cry mercy. We'll have to catch you next time in the RBA corner. Thanks a lot. Can't wait for it. Thanks, guys. And we are back. And now 1988 begins... In 1988, Lou had the lowest games played in his career since the 81 strike, only 115 games for an embarrassing and awesome reason. He injured himself dancing at an anniversary party. And not just dancing. This isn't just any dance injury. He said, we were doing a fast dance and I did the splits. The first <laughs> time, nothing happened. The second time I went down, I heard something pop. Yeah, that's that's not good. That's not a sound you want to hear. Normally when I'm doing the splits on the dance floor, I only do it once because I know 
The mm-hmm. second time is going to be that's going to be trouble. And Lou tore cartilage in his knee on that second splits. It didn't require surgery, but he missed significant playing time. It was unfortunate timing because the Tigers finished one game behind the Red Sox in the AL East. Lou was hitting 347 in the 18 games before he was shut down, and then he was replaced by Jim Whalewander. And if we remember anything about Jim, it's not his on-field exploits. He was not a very strong hitter, and perhaps a healthy Lou Whitaker could have given the Tigers one more chance at the postseason. After failing this year to make the postseason, the team just starts falling apart. They lost 100-plus games in 1989 and would only finish over 500 two more times in Lou's career. But for his part, Lou was still a very consistent performer on some mediocre to bad Tigers teams. He led the team in wins above replacement in 1989 and 91. 89, he had a career-high 28 home runs, but his average was low, 251. And in 1990, he only hit 237. 91, he comes back strong with his highest career war year, 6.8 at age 34. And so he had some really strong seasons, even into his mid-30s. I had a memory that Lou was really good against the White Sox. And then I looked, and his career stats against the White Sox were pretty average. But when I looked a little further, he had a 962 OPS at the new Comiskey. So it was mostly that I remember him just destroying the White Sox when they were playing against them at home. So Lou had some really strong seasons when he should have been kind of on the downside of, of his career. Yeah, And then in 92, he actually passed the 2,000 hit and 200 home run milestones, which I just wanted to put that into context again, because he was only the fourth second baseman to, to do both of those, joining Rogers Hornsby, Joe Morgan, and Bobby Doerr. Uh, since then, it's, it's, a, it's a group that has grown with Sandberg, Alomar, Biggio, Kent, but also even Brandon Phillips and Robinson Cano. So in 92, he had another solid year, 278 average, 19 homers, and 71 RBIs. And at the end of that season, he was granted free agency from the Tigers. He had opportunities to play elsewhere, but Lou's family, his wife and kids, wanted to stay in Detroit to keep a stable life for the kids as they were, uh, as they were growing up. So he signed a three-year, $7.5 million contract to stay in Detroit. He played out this contract with diminishing playing time in the last two seasons. He's often benched against lefties. He played 295 games over that three-year stretch and hit 295 with 35 home runs. After 1995, he has an offer from the Tigers, as well as opportunities in Atlanta, New York, Boston, but he chose to retire after 19 seasons in Detroit. Alan Trammell stuck around for one more season, played out 1996, but 1996 was the end of this double play duo. In 1995, the the final year of his career, he had an 890 OPS, which was actually the highest OPS of his career. It's kind of an interesting quirk that part of it is because he he started his career in the low offense era and ended in the steroid era. But if you look at the OPS plus numbers, which which translate his OPS related to league average, his best years of his career came at 34, 35, then 26, he had a really good year. But then 32, 36, and 38, are all of his best offensive years were right at the end of his career, which is very strange and something that maybe like a, like a Dwight Evans uh, might play into you know the fact that 
Hall of Fame voters might have had their their opinions formed of him already before he started going off at the plate. On September 13th of that season as well, in his final year, he and Trammell played their 1,915th game together, which actually set a new record for teammates, surpassing George Brett and Frank White, which was a fairly recently set record as well. I'm not sure exactly when, but to this day, they're the teammates that have played the most together in, in 1,915 games. Fantastic. Great partnership. And so closing the book on Lou Whitaker's career, career stat line, 276 average and 363 OPS, 2,369 hits, 1,386 runs, more than 1,000 RBIs, 244 home runs, 143 stolen bases, and I don't, I can't just keep reading these all. Bro. Am I? Let's see. Um, <laughs> I, I found it interesting, Matt. He ranks 61st all time in sacrifice flies. I think he also bunted a lot, and this is something that Lou talks about that. Part of playing for Sparky Anderson was doing the things that Sparky told him to do that maybe took away from some of the stats that he might have built up if he was just maybe more free swinging. So a lot of sacrifice flies. 63rd all-time in walks is pretty good. 97th in defensive wins above replacement. And overall, 52nd overall in wins above replacement for uh, position players. His defensive stats, fourth all-time in double plays turned by a second baseman. Five-time All-Star, four-time Silver Slugger, three-time Gold Glove winner. And also Rookie of the Year in 1978, has a World Series ring. So how about in retirement, David? He initially moved to Florida with his wife and daughters. Now he lives in North Carolina, about 50 miles from where he grew up in Martinsville. He's focused on his family and his religion, devoting a lot of time to missionary work for the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he's kept a pretty low profile. But while Alan Trammell was managing the Tigers, Whitaker was an instructor in spring training. And recently, Whitaker gets asked a lot about what we're going to talk about next, the Hall of Fame. And of course, if someone is asking anybody, if someone belongs in the Hall of Fame, we're going to turn around and ask Adam Dorowski. Let's talk about Lou Whitaker in the Hall of Fame. All right, let's do it. So first, we'll talk about what happened when he hit the ballot. And that was in 2001. So he hit the ballot along with teammates Kurt Gibson and Lance Parrish. Uh, they were all first-year candidates at the same time. It was actually Jack Morris's second year, and then Alan Trammell, of course, would come on a year later. So in 2001, Morris got 101 votes, 19.6%. Uh, Whitaker just 15 votes for 2.9% and immediately fell off the ballot, as did Gibson, who got two fewer votes for for 13 votes and 2.5%. And Lance Parrish, uh, you know, that's another great player that only got nine votes and 1.7% of the vote. And just for fun, that's the, the same uh, ballot that Tom Hankey received only six votes. And one of the great uh, trivia questions, Jose Rijo received uh, a Hall of Fame vote and then actually ended up returning to the Reds. He's the last active player who had previously received a Hall of Fame vote. Trammell debuted the next year and got 15.7% of the vote, but you compare that to Whitaker's 2.9%, and it's, it's, it's not fair. So the big thing, we didn't know this then, but we know now that Lou Whitaker was a 75-war player. I mean, Trammell was good, too. Trammell was 70-71 war, but Lou Whitaker was a 75-war player. How does a player like Whitaker get to 75-war? And I alluded to some of this stuff earlier. If you like, look at the traditional numbers, He's already incredibly rare with his hit total and home run total. The only second baseman that can match him there now with his final career numbers are Morgan, Hornsby, Sandberg, Biggio, Kent, and Cano. 
And that's not very many. If you add in those walks that you referenced just a little while ago, and Morgan's the only one that can match him on all three numbers. And the, the three gold gloves and four silver sluggers, that's something that only Sandberg, Biggio, and Alomar have done. I was a little bit shocked at how few all-star games he played in. Because I remember Lou Whitaker as a great player in the 80s and the 90s. Aside from that five-year stretch where he made an all-star game in five seasons in a row, he didn't make a, an all-star team in the 90s, even though he was having some of his best seasons. And then I was looking at who made those all-star teams, and it was Roberto Alomar, Carlos Baerga, Julio Franco. And the Tigers had declined by that point, and it kind of made more sense. Lou probably could have earned a few more gold gloves early in his career by modern metrics, but he was up against Frank White, who won five, six gold gloves in a row. Maybe he wasn't the greatest at any given time, but over the course of that time, when you compile it up, he's really good. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it just, when it all adds up, you get that 75 war figure. So what is war? Listeners might know that, but just to a refresher, you know, it's wins above the theoretical replacement player, and you get to that war number by calculating runs above average for a series of different components. And it's these different components that really help Whitaker because it's all things that he was really good at. There's components for batting, there's components for fielding, there's value in the position they play, there's base running, there's even things like avoiding the double play. So if you look at these individual components, so batting, he's 209 runs above average. That's 16th among second basemen. Uh, there are some non-Hall of Famers ahead of him, like Kent and Cano and Bobby Gritch, but also like Hardy Richardson and Larry Doyle, some guys that played in like the 19th century and turn of the 20th century. But still, 16th all-time among hitter, hitters, that's great. Fielding, he's 77 runs above average. That's 26th among second basemen. So that, of course, includes all of the, the second basemen who could field but can't hit. Uh, whereas Whitaker can do both. And then you, you get Whitaker on the base paths. We're going to combine his base running and avoiding double plays and call those both his his base running. So these are the types of things that add up and go into war. So who can match Whitaker on all three as a second baseman? None. That's That's the thing. Nobody else can match him on all of those. In fact, among all players at every position in history, the only players that can match him on all three are Barry Bonds, Willie Mays, and Larry Walker. So this is like, like individually, these components are not all-time greats. I think the best one was 11th all-time, but the combination of each of them is exceedingly rare. Now, even if you take second baseman and, and cut all of Whitaker's numbers in half, the only second baseman that can match him are Chase Utley, Ryan Sandberg, Jackie Robinson, Frankie Frisch, and Willie Randolph. So that's like cutting every one of those numbers in half. So then, you know, he also played a very valuable position for a very long time. And when you do that, you end up getting 75 war. And, and that's third among eligible non-Hall of Famers behind just Barry Bonds and 19th century shortstop Bill Dolan, who's just one-tenth of a, a win above replacement ahead of him. And so even though he was off the ballot after one, one year, how can he get into the Hall of Fame now? What, how do these era committees work? And maybe this takes us to what the building the ballot podcast is about yeah the, the building the ballot podcast is about these era committees that used to be collectively known as the veterans committee now it's been split into four different eras we have the early baseball era which is baseball before 1950 
the golden days era is 1950 to 1969. The modern baseball era is 1970 to 1987. And today's game is 1988 to present. You are put into the era that you contributed the most uh, to your career in. So <laughs> Whitaker, as we actually just talked about, he, he kind of towed that line. It was the first phase of Whitaker was in the modern baseball and the second phase was in today's game. But he is considered a modern baseball era candidate. And that group last met in December of 2019 for 2020 induction, and 12 out of 16 votes are needed. So it's a small committee. There's 16 voting members. You need 12, 75%. And Lou Whitaker got six votes out of the 16. So not even half. Marvin Miller and Ted Simmons got in. Uh, They had 13 votes apiece. Dwight Evans had eight. Dave Parker had seven. Whitaker was tied with... Steve Garvey uh, with six out of 16. There's 16 people voting. How many people can they vote for? They can vote for up to four candidates. So that means there's only 64 votes to go around for these 10 candidates. So what we saw on this ballot was while um, Miller and Simmons just got over the line, they ended up taking 26 of the votes too. So the rest of the candidates just split those votes. It's exceedingly difficult to get more than one or even two plus uh, with these types of era committees, which might actually be by design. The most candidates that have ever gone in on one of these era committees is three, and that was the 2013 pre-integration era. And it just so happened that coincided with the year that the BBWAA had a shutout because all of the the Bonds, Clemens, and Sosas, and and Schillings all hit the ballot at the same time. So it seems a little <laughs> little too... Uh, it works out a little too well there that they got three candidates from the pre-integration era. But now that Simmons and Miller are off of the ballot, it does free up a lot of votes. And some of those could go to Whitaker. And when is he next up for election? When does the modern baseball era committee meet again? Right. So this winter, it's the early baseball and the golden days are both meeting at the same time. Next year will be the today's game. And then the year after that uh, will be the modern baseball. So in December of 2023 for 2024, induction is the next time that he's able to get in. So in addition to the, the candidates that received votes last time, other candidates that were on the ballot were Don Mattingly, Tommy John, Dale Murphy, and Thurman Munson. They all got three votes or less. They don't tell you how many votes they got if, if uh, <laughs> like they don't want to hurt their feelings or something to say you got zero or one vote. So they say it's three or less. But th- there's a lot of other candidates that will be eligible for the ballot. Not all of them make it. But like the players that didn't even make the ballot, Rick Rushell didn't make the ballot, Bobby Gritch, Louis Tiant, last time he didn't make it, he has made it before. Greg Nettles, Reggie Smith, Willie Randolph, Buddy Bell, Sal Bando, Keith Hernandez, Dave Steve. It's a stacked ballot. So you're going to see a lot of vote splits, I think, with the Modern Baseball Era Committee. And it's too bad because it's probably the committee that has the most viable candidates that we really should be inducting these these guys while they're alive and can enjoy it. Why do we think that Trammell got in and stayed on the ballot for 15 years and Whitaker didn't even get 5%? And probably doesn't have much of a chance in against these stacked ballots in the future. It's a great question. And it's one that really, I think it comes down to shortstop being a little bit more of a glamour position. And I think that Trammell also had a couple of seasons where he was in the MVP conversation, whereas Whitaker was incredibly unique in that he was just steady 
every year. He's the all-time leader in seasons between three and seven war, which is a weird record to have. So, like, you're always good enough to have three war, but you're never good enough to have more than seven. Fifteen out of his, what, 19 seasons, he was in between three and seven war. And that adds up. But it's not the type of season that makes people go, oh, my God, it's the best player in baseball. But over a decade and a half, he was absolutely one of the best players in baseball. In my research here, I found a familiar name quoted in a Sporting News article that said Whitaker was remarkably consistent. If he had a few more eight war seasons and fewer three war seasons, he'd be in. And that was by I think you were named as Cooperstown Enthusiast which definitely sounds like something I would say, uh, Adam Dorowski. And I think that the 88 top set influences my mind of Trammell versus Whitaker. Trammell's on three cards in this set. He had a huge season in 1987, probably should have been MVP. And Whitaker was just consistently good and had a Lou Whitaker season, (laughs) hitting 16 home runs in 265, and that was an average season for him and where Trammell had that eight plus war season Lou did not I've seen it described that he didn't feel like a hall of famer during his career he had one season that earned him MVP votes and he finished eighth yeah Trammell's 1987 was an absolutely amazing season but if you look at his career numbers like two years before in 1985 he's a below average hitter two years later in 1989 he's a below average hitter and Whitaker just didn't have those swings but when Trammell has those peaks that are so high I think voters tended to remember those peaks even as Trammell was dipping back in form there's a couple guys who remind me of Trammell and Whitaker on these ballots. So the early baseball era committee, it reviews candidates who were active before 1950. And the amazing thing about this year is we're considering Negro League candidates for the first time in 15 years. So this is wonderful. We've got Buck O'Neill on the ballot, really good chance of getting in. But there's also six other Negro League and pre-Negro League era candidates that are on this ballot in their exceptionally good candidates and two of them one's a second baseman named George Tubby Scales and he reminds me of the type of player that Lou Whitaker was where he's a solid hitter for many years premium position certainly holds his own defensively if you run his stats through what uh, researcher Eric Shalek calls MLEs major league equivalencies you can see that he's like a, a player with about 2,800 hits and nearly 70 war. And he starts to look a lot like a a career that Lou Whitaker might've had, maybe if he didn't walk as much. And then on the other side, uh, we have a a shortstop named Grant Home Run Johnson. And he's just like Trammell in that he was good at everything. He was a great hitter, good fielder, played shortstop for a very long time. If you run his numbers through these major league equivalencies, we get like a 75 war player. So there are players not only on the outside of the, the modern baseball era that that look like Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell, but we have them going back to the Negro Leagues and beyond. It's just a good reminder of how many great candidates there are outside the Hall of Fame in addition to Lou Whitaker. All right. So, David, are we satisfied with this as an answer of why Lou didn't make it? Is it just being unlucky at being only good enough to be good, but not great enough to be seen as great? Yeah, I think that this was a perception problem of a guy, even by modern metrics, who had 15 seasons of 3.5 war. And 
as Adam said, he had the most seasons between three and seven. So the most very good but not spectacular seasons. And does that make a Hall of Famer? I found a an article that kind of laments the lack of stories about Lou Whitaker. And really, even while we were talking about it, what do we have? He was in Magnum P.I. He forgot his jersey. <laughs> he had an okay World Series. And then he had a largely, like, kind of uneventful career that we just spent an hour talking about. He flew under the radar in a smaller media market, and he wasn't necessarily the flashiest player even on this Tigers team that was very good. He made baseball and playing second base look easy. And according to even his teammate, Kirk Gibson, this was maybe perceived as a lack of hustle. And people would say, if Lou would hustle, he would be really good. But Lou was just smooth. Trust me, he was hustling. Lou doesn't seem necessarily bitter about being left off the ballot, but disappointed. When he was pressed about dropping off the ballot after just one year, he said, Tram had the opportunity to be there for a long time. He came off, what, last few years or whatever? But Lou, I didn't get it. I didn't even get daylight. Now that's unfair. My goal was always just to win Play, have fun, win. And that's what I did for 19 years. And it's also kind of odd that the Tigers, who've honored Lou a couple times, they've had different celebrations. They retired Alan Trammell's number in 2018, but they didn't honor Lou that same year. That said, hopefully, next year, his number will be retired. It was announced in 2019 that Lou's number one would be retired in August of 2020. And then... COVID happened, and the Tigers didn't want to retire the number without fans in the stand. This year was weird, 2021, so they put it off until 2022. And so next year, Lou will get that honor from the team, and his number will be right next to Alan Trammell's number three. And hopefully, in 2023, Lou will get that ultimate honor from the Baseball Hall of Fame. And it just doesn't seem right that Alan Trammell was sent in 2017, and Lou wasn't. And Trammell agrees, and he said in his induction at the Hall of Fame, my whole career I'd been linked with one person. For 19 years, Lou Whitaker and I formed the longest-running double-play combination in the history of baseball. I doubt that record will ever be broken. For all those years, it was Lou and Tram. It was an honor and a pleasure to have played alongside you all those years. And my hope is someday you'll be up here as well. And I think it's my hope as well that Lou Whitaker gets into the Hall of Fame. Uh, and after looking at it and looking at the numbers and looking at a really good Sabre bio by John Milner, uh, I, I hope that Lou Whitaker gets his ultimate reward and gets voted into the Hall of Fame by the Modern Era Committee. I'm hoping that he has a, a great showing next time. He he only had six votes the, the previous ballot, which is not at the top of the uh, the returning candidates. Dwight Evans is actually the top returning candidate, but if Dewey and, and Whitaker go in at the same time, I'd be happy. Great. Well, thank you for that, Adam, and and thank you for, for joining us. Tell us where folks can find your podcast. Building the ballot so far, we've only covered the, the early baseball and golden days because that's the, the ones that we're meeting right now. But the plan is now to uh, continue on to the other errors as they come up. 
really just started this because it was a, a podcast that I, I wanted to have out there so that I could listen to it and, and learn from experts. So instead, I just rang them up myself and, and learned a whole ton uh, along the way. So uh, yeah, just look up Building the Ballot anywhere that you, you find podcasts and Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all of that. And yeah, I'd appreciate a listen. It's great. Thanks. I really appreciated the Major League Equivalencies episode. It got me about halfway to St. Louis. So I deeply appreciated (laughs) that on a a nighttime drive. More great candidates and more great stories. We'll look forward to hearing them all. Thanks, Adam, for joining us again and hope to have you back in the new year. And David, thank you for a great story of another great Lou. And thank you to you at home for listening. So if you've placed your order for Steak, Burger, and Shakes, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.